This is Fried Squirms, and I'm Tyler. And I'm Danny. And this is episode 77. It is, and we've got a really fun movie this week. Now, at the end of last week, we had talked about ideas. Of course, we've been saying this a lot about Pet Cemetery, so that was kind of in the playing deck. Mm-hmm. But we opted to give the boys another week to prepare themselves, and with that, we had a fallback plan, and we chose a fan favorite and ours. I mean, Jesus, it's one of our favorites. Yeah. I don't know how we didn't get to this sooner because I really enjoy this movie. Likewise, and I know we've talked about it repeatedly over the course of this podcast, so we figured, why not? It's a good way to introduce it into the collection of our reviews, and uh, so here we are. Yeah, so Nightbreed is this week, and then hopefully next week, Pet Cemetery. Have you talked to the boys? I have. I haven't, okay. I haven't. They're ready. Okay, good. I know Justin and Patrick are definitely on board. I think Riley might be. Good, yeah, we'll just fill this fucker up. Actually, we're probably not going to fill this fucker up, are we? Yeah. We talked about doing this out on the big TV. On the big screen. Anyway, we'll figure that all out behind the scenes. That's not a problem for you guys. That's a problem for us. (laughs) A fun problem. Yeah, definitely a good fun problem to have. Before we get into the movie this week... What do you have as news? Because you kind of know what I have as news, which isn't so much news as more of what I've been listening to this week that I just want to pass along to listeners. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely newsworthy, though. All right, so this week I took the opportunity to go check out a film that has been recommended several times now to me. And I went with our friend Patrick, who will be on board next week, and his nephew, who he's telling me. It's a big horror fan, but, you know, at the age of, I think he's 11, okay. I was like, you know, how big of a horror fan is he really? <laughs> so anyhow, we went and seen Hereditary on Friday night, and without saying a whole lot about the film, I can't stop thinking about the film, and I'm willing to say that it might be the best horror film I've ever seen in the theater. Wow. Yeah, I'm willing to put money on that, too. So I, for one, highly recommend it. I believe it's getting a release for Blu-ray and DVD in September, and I can't wait. That's all uh, I'll say about Best that. movie you've seen in a theater, or best movie you've seen in a theater that was originally released during your lifetime, because I know that you've went and seen Suspiria in the theater. Honestly, <laughs> all right, that's, that's a tough one, man. All right, cinematically, as far as visuals, Suspiria is superior, but storyline and the overall value of the film... I would, hands and above and head above, put that on Hereditary. It's just, I think it's almost a perfect film. Wow. Wow. I mean, I can't See, express it enough. God damn it. I almost went and saw it yesterday, and then I decided, oh, no, I'm just going to wait maybe a little bit later this month. Oh, man. So Especially good. because we're going to be going, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to we're the still gonna be, we're going to be going to the theaters <laughs> this weekend. Yeah, um, so as of tomorrow, which is July the 4th, the first purge, we can finally say that and be factually correct. <laughs> so, yeah, it starts tomorrow, but we'll check it out over this weekend coming weekend. Yeah. And get something online decently quick. Yeah, at least put up a little mini-sode. We're going to say something about it, considering we talked about uh, the no, three. for a month now. So Yeah, that's weird, by the way. Also, if you guys didn't realize that, our episodes are like a week out from each other. Yeah, we spaced so, them out. 
you're not going to hear this for a bit, but we still haven't seen the first Purge. Yeah, which that is kind of funny now that you think about it. It's like we're we saying this about it last week. We're saying this past tense because it's coming out next week, but it's future tense right now for us. It's yeah. funny. Anywho, yeah, so went to seen Hereditary. I did watch a couple other films this week. I told you last night, I finally got my brother-in-law, Jeff, and my sister, Ashley, to see The Witch. They liked it. Yep. So that gives Jeff, he said, at least him a chance to go back and listen to our episode. And I told him, you know, there was things I'm starting to catch, you know, the more I view that film. And we've mentioned this before, too. It's, we leave ourselves open to revisit films. So, you know, somewhere down the line... There will be some of these films that we've done would be fun to kind of reanalyze them. There's a lot of things I'm catching in certain films now just because we've been doing this for so long. But watch The Witch last night. Watched Parents, which I recommend that too. There's a hmm. streaming service called Tubby or Tubi. But they have a pretty good selection of horror films, and I hadn't seen that film in a long time. Now it's a 1989 film starring Randy Quaid. Very bizarre film. It's almost Lynchian in the storytelling, but it's not quite abstract. Still good. Went and watched that and got myself a copy of Nightbreed for this episode. So, did you get the. I didn't the, get the Cabal cut. No, Jesus no, no. Did Christ. you get the Shout Factory? I did. Nice. I sure did. So, the version I watched was the director's cut. So, that's right. a little and bit which of Which is also the version I watched. Okay, good. So, <laughs> which because is that's quite... the version that's up on Shudder. Exactly. So, with that, I'll reserve some of that speak for later. But. Outside of like actually watching films this week, I do have some news concerning some films that we actually have reviewed that are getting some Shout Factory releases, ironically oh. enough. So with that, the first one I, I will say is that Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, the one that we reviewed, Season of the Witch, they're getting Steelbook editions, oh. and this coming from Scream Factory, like I said, and they're getting 4K scans as well. Hear that, Sean Astin? Yeah, Sean Astin and Marquand. <laughs> If you guys want still books, Shout Factory, Screen Factory are putting them out. That's that's some news from the week. Hi everybody. We found out this week that Sean Aston's a listener of the show. Yeah. We've got an email to prove it. Yeah, now whether or not it's the real Sean Aston, that's a debate. And we also found out that Sean Aston's email is his name at Hotmail. Yeah, so give him a holler. <laughs> <laughs> that's fucking hilarious, but Continuing with Scream Factory, another film that you and I reviewed. It's actually a Halloween favorite, ironically enough, but Trick, Trick or Treat. Trees. Yeah. They're coming I out with I another Blu-ray with some cool cover art. It's limited to, I think, a thousand copies of the slipcover edition. So for those who do like slipcovers, make sure that you at least reserve it. I think it's getting... I want to say release sometime in September, if I'm not mistaken, okay. around that time. Yeah, and then another film that we have reviewed, but it's sequels. Phantasm 3 and Phantasm 4 are finally getting their standalone Blu-ray editions. Oh, okay. Yeah, so for the longest Were time... Were they part of a pack? They've either or... been a part of the box sets, yeah, or part of packs. Part 3 was actually one of my favorite in the entire series. It might actually be we my favorite. We need to go back to Phantasm at I some point. I love that series. But part three, arguably right now, might be my favorite. Okay. Yeah, so that's that as far as the Blu-ray front. Now I do have one more bit of news, and then I'll sit back and hear what you guys to say. But we've talked about already Suspiria. So this week, the director, Luca Guadagnino, he got with Quentin Tarantino, and they privately screened the film. Reason being is because Guadagnino and Tarantino served on a Venice like jury panel of a okay. film festival. So... 
he wanted Tarantino's honest opinion, so he got invited to Tarantino's. Tarantino and him watched it. And I'm going to use quotes. So this is verbatim. This is coming from Guadagnino. He said, we saw it at his place, and his reaction warmed me. He was enthusiastic about it. In the end, he was crying and hugged me. So that's after coming with Chloe Grace Mertz, who plays in mm-hmm. a role or a character in the film. Now, she said it might be on par with some of Stanley Kubrick's best. She said it. Jesus. Yeah. So it makes me hopeful. It really makes me hopeful for this film. Yeah, we'll see, won't we? Yeah. I'm definitely going to go see it. I don't know exactly you know, when, but I know it comes out in November. So sometime in November. Cool. Yeah. So that's some of the news that I have to share this week. So yeah, I don't have any real news other than this week I saw a headline and it made me look up a group. I don't know how to exactly describe this group because their music is such a mix of different things. It certainly is. Uh, but it is something that should appeal to horror fans. Considering. <laughs> as the name of the group is horror, except it's nines in place of all the R's. Yeah, and you told me an interesting fact about that, too. Which also leads them to be called Triple Nine Death Cult. Fuck yeah. <laughs> I showed you a couple tracks right before we started. I did. One of them just with a killer sample of the fucking Halloween riff. Well, I mean, Halloween right now is a common thread. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds good. God, it's definitely not the sort of music that's going to be blow everyone's skirt up yeah but i think it's something unique enough that everyone should check it out to see if it does yeah because it's this weird mix of god what did we all hear in there there was definitely like there's punk bad yeah i mean bad brains hardcore punk influence bad brains we uh, said industrial dk's yeah (laughs) there's definitely industrial synth you know, some of the from... shit sounds like it could be straight out of like a ministry song yeah. or even I didn't show you the entire album, but some of it is very like nine inch nailsy. Hip hop wise, like one of the songs we listened to definitely actually had a weird crunk influence. It did. <laughs> the way I would describe, like I said, it's a blend of all of those things we said with a really nice rhythm that keeps you hooked in. I mean it has a hook. And it has those nice transitions between some of those genres. I mean, honestly, this all sounds like it doesn't go together. Yeah, but I kind of realize really that as job. I'm saying it out loud. Like, well, that's why it's it's hard to tell until you listen to it. Exactly. But I fucking I listened through their latest album a few times this week. United States of Horror. Nice. It's super good. There's a couple songs like I didn't touch on with you that definitely are like Clash, Ramones influenced. Nice mixed with like nine inch nails there's some stuff that seems like it's almost ripping on like mumble rap <laughs> but all of it is like super aggressive and dark kind of like death grips nice so even if this doesn't quite sound up your alley and it's definitely not going to be for everybody Still check it out related considering check it name. out it's horror related their name is fucking horror <laughs> i'm glad that you introduced it to me and yeah, you know, for those who are interested, I'd say definitely check it out. At least if nothing else. For and that. it's so unique. Even if it Halloween doesn't sound day. like it might be up your alley, it might be up your alley. Why not? Check it out. Anyway, that's all I have. It's well, really nice. not even news. It's just, I fucking geeked out on that. No. And it was great. I think you and I might have watched an upcoming trailer for a Nicolas Cage film this week. Too. I didn't you know that I think it about yet. it. Oh, you I haven't? watched it yet. Oh, shit. All right, so the film I'm talking about is Mandy. Holy fuck. I know we've been talking about Nick Cage lately, but this has the potential to be like right up there with some of his best 
I think we talked about Nick Cage because I very specifically love Con Air. Yeah, we brought that up several times now, which is fucking <laughs> hilarious. From the trailer, I know it's from the guy who's the son of the director who did like a bunch of Rambo films and oh, okay. Cobra and you know a bunch of films in the eighties. I mean, like, like action films. But this guy, actually, he's the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow. Okay. So visually, it's very surreal. A lot of action. That's about all I'll say until you see the trailer. So I know. Look, I mean, it hasn't. I've all I've seen is headlines across the internet, and so I also know a chainsaw is involved. I can't confirm but i can <laughs> no, i definitely confirm that yeah dude it, i think you'll like it i really do sick so should we start talking about nightbreed yeah no we've been talking enough about the news of the week but I yeah mean, we had to talk about some horror right yeah i mean it's what we do we're whores for horror <laughs> damn right actually we're friends with the horror hosts so check them out too <laughs> let's do that nightbreed, nightbreed. Yeah. guts and bolts let's do it So we mentioned before, this is our 77th episode. We're reviewing Nightbreed this week. Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Yeah. And we're oh, Did no you strangers. not know Nightbreed was Clive Barker? What the fuck are you doing listening to our goddamn podcast? Yeah, there's a bit <laughs> of a spoiler involved with the actual title of the novel. I don't really consider it a, too much of not a spoiler. Not really, but I mean, kind of, but not really. Yeah. I mean, it's a spoiler, I guess, but it doesn't make sense until you get to it. Exactly. So, so I mean, for this section, it probably wouldn't be a spoiler anyhow. No, no. So, what year was this movie? I could just bring it up. I it came out in 1990. It is a United Kingdom film, even though it gets credited as a USA, mostly because of production. And as far as, like, subgenre of horror, this is kind of a weird one. It is. It's a fun one, too. It's a fun one. This movie... Go ahead and look up a trailer for this movie right now. It's not what you think it is. Which, that's a really interesting story within itself. You're right. You're absolutely right. And that's the thing. I actually watched one of the trailers for this movie, and I read some of the controversy behind its marketing, and I felt like, if anything, the trailer was too honest about what it actually was. Mm-hmm. It kind of just spelt it out, but I don't know. I wasn't watching, you know, Nightbreed fucking promos in 1990. <laughs> I was I watching know, right? Rugrats in 1990. So there you go. Yeah, and even back then, this film got a release when I wasn't even 90 yet, so I was still a youngster. When you go up on Wikipedia, it describes it as a dark fantasy mm-hmm. horror film. I can understand that. Dark fantasy might be the best description of it. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really good term to use for this film. Slash slasher. There, there is, is a there slasher is element slasher that element, is yeah. crucial to the movie. Oh, definitely. Uh, I would agree the with fact that. that there's a slasher is crucial and gives us our scariest character, but Ooh. it's not a slasher film. <laughs> it's not, which we'll talk about that too. So... Being that it's a Clive Barker film, and being that we're the Fried Squirms, we like to give a little plot summary, a little synopsis uh, before synopsis. we get involved. This is kind of a tough one without giving away too much, but... Okay, I did watch a trailer for this, so I'm not going to give away any more <laughs> than the trailer did. Yeah. How about that? That sounds good. As just like a benchmark, because I'm not quite sure what I should say otherwise. Yeah, but, without revealing too much. 
So this was straight out in the trailer, what it said. Monsters are the good guys. <laughs> and there's a mental patient who thinks he's a serial killer. Yeah, I read something close to that too, which is similar to what you're saying. Monsters are the good guys. A man has these dreams about a mythical place, and there's a serial killer who needs a patsy. Yeah, and it's a big movie in a way. Like there's, it, really is. A, it hints at a giant, bigger world and mythology behind it. All of these synopses that we're giving seem like they're just small, minute bits of what this movie actually feels like when you're watching it. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, without revealing a whole lot, I think that's a, probably a good just brief summary of what you're going to get yourself involved with this. So along with that, we have already mentioned that this is a Clive Barker film, and we are no strangers to Clive Barker. If you don't know who the fuck Clive Barker is, why are you doing listening to a horror podcast? <laughs> No, I mean, I don't want to alienate you. It's just, it, it well, seems you know, weird that you would be even listening to a, if you'd be so into it that you'd be listening to a podcast and not have heard the name. That's, you know what I that's mean? That's a good point. Well, you know, even if it is like a formal introduction, I mean, 77 is kind of an yeah, hey, interesting number to jump in I was about to say, but hey, that's cool. We're happy to have you in the community. It right. just blows my mind if you don't know who the fuck Clive Barker no, is. No kidding, because it's been such a huge name for us, especially growing up, even right now by today's standards. So. We probably list way more complete credits way back on our Hellraiser 2 episode. Oh, we certainly did. But suffice to say, Clive Barker is the mastermind behind Hellraiser. Certainly is. So <laughs> you think about Hellraiser, you think about Clive Barker. Another one I'll throw out is if you think about Candyman, which we have covered, you think about Clive Barker. Or at least I would hope you would. Huge name in horror for a long time. Writer, director, Yeah, artist. I mean, he's even an artist. Yeah, he yeah. certainly is. Actually, I mean, I'm, I know that he is because I follow him on social media and I see a lot of his artwork up on there. Yeah, multi-talented. And we'll throw out the fact that he is from Liverpool. And a lot of his shit's super dark and, like, gothic, gothic and yes, chains fuck. and... I like it. Crazy shit. So well, I, he does draw a lot from Christianity too. That too. A lot of spiritualism. So keep that um, in mind. And that plays straight into this movie as well. It certainly does. Yeah. So I'll list off a few credits. We talked about Hellraiser. He also directed Lord of Illusions and a film called Salome and the Forbidden. Some of his writing credits. I've got a few. We talked about the Hellraiser franchise. He also wrote the screenplay for Rawhead Rex, which I think there's like short stories. It's based off his short yeah. story. Talked about there's Candyman, been a shit ton of his things based off his short stories. It certainly um, has been, hasn't it? I read through his books of blood, and I want to say that there's been at least six short stories spun out of those. I can see that adapted, yeah. One of them, if I'm not mistaken, I've got, he did the Midnight Meat Train. I don't know if that's based off of any of those, but... I fucking love Midnight Meat Train. That's a great film. And there are two Masters of Horror stories that were inspired from his stories. One of the episodes is Valerie on the Stairs, and the other one is Heckle's Tales. And I've seen both of them. They're really good. So if you're familiar with any of Clive Barker's works, you'll be right at home. I love Midnight Meat Train, but you could probably reboot that movie already, and it would work really well, I think. I would agree. It's a great film, man. I really enjoy it. So, yeah, that's some of the credits I have. Now, he did also write the novella Cabal. Yes, which, which this, this is, is based, based off. off of. Yes, exactly. So we should... Re- <laughs> that's kind of a spoiler, but that's for later, and we'll explain mm-hmm. why. But you're right. So our cinematographer on this interesting person, this person is Robin Vigian. Now, he's known for some of his works. He was a cinematographer on Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2. He was actually the cinematographer on the film I mentioned earlier, the film Parents. 
He was also the cinematographer on The Fly Part 2. You might have seen his work in the movie The Fool, a film I kind of enjoy. It's a B kind of cult classic. It's called Highway to Hell. I really enjoy that film. He's the cinematographer on The Never-Ending Story Part 3. He did four episodes of Tales from the Crypt. This was the last season, which was actually set in England. That was from 1996. So those are some of his works. Our editors, two people. I do need to bring these people up because they've got some really interesting credit, especially the first person. Okay, so the people that I have that edited on this film. Now, there are two gentlemen. First gentleman is Mark Goldblatt. So when I looked at his works, and he's got an extensive list and catalog of these films, some of his more well-known films are, he did some work, you go back on Halloween 2, The Howling, Rambo we mentioned earlier, First Blood Part 2, Predator 2, Terminator 2, The Last Boy Scout, Super Mario Brothers, Hollow Man, Detroit Rock City. I kind of shat on this film a little bit online earlier this week, <laughs> but he was the editor and The Exorcist the beginning. So those are some of his works. And the other gentleman that was an editor on this film is Richard Martin. So some of his works are pretty interesting too. He's got a wealth of them. So I'll go back. We talked about already. He did work with Hellraiser, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. He's got some other work on the film Hamlet, which is pretty decent, and Sparrow from 1993, The Innocent, another pretty decent vampire film, and Jane Eyre. So those are some of his credits. So some of these people got some really strong connections to Clive Barker already, and he's known for kind of collecting an ensemble group of people. So the music on this, probably the biggest name, I think, outside of Clive Barker is Danny Elfman. So if you're not familiar with Danny Elfman... You should be. You should be. Yeah. Jesus. Like Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah. If you've seen any of Tim Burton's films, for the most part, yeah. (laughs) If you're familiar with the band Oingo Boingo, then... (laughs) The Mystical Knights of Oingo Boingo. Yeah, which is really cool. There was a film I actually own. It's called The Forbidden Zone. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of supposed to be a make-believe band, but Oingo Boingo sprung out of that. They Mm -hmm. weren't a band before that. It came through that film, which is kind of funny. But Danny Elfman is known for his fantastical scores. You know, he's done the theme music for The Simpsons. <laughs> I mean, his list is fucking ridiculous. We'd be all day talking about him, but... I think we talked about him for some other movie, and I can't remember what it was now. I've noticed that there was actually a lot of people in this movie that we've talked about at least once. Yeah, for sure. Especially, we've already talked about it, but because of Hellbound... There's a lot of people we've already talked about yeah. before, which is cool. But yeah, even the Batman, the animated series from the 90s. Well, he did the opening theme for that. Actually, I know the story behind that. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. All he did for Batman, the animated series, was the theme because they used the Batman theme from the Tim Burton Batman movies. Understandable, yeah. Which is He work. wasn't originally <laughs> going to do the theme for it. He kind of didn't want to be involved in the TV side of it. He's like, oh, it's okay as a movie and shit. Yeah. But then he did the theme for The Simpsons and realized basically how much money you make off of television because of how often it gets aired and re-aired and this and that and how everything all gets paid out. And so he's like, I think he had an option in his contract or something where he could force the issue. But that's all he did. It was actually a different, I can't remember her name, I feel really bad, but a different composer for the rest of the series. And what they use is like the Batman theme Mm -hmm. in the series was supposed to be the theme for the show. That's pretty neat. Yeah, it's like some of the other works I was thinking about is he scored Pee-wee's Big Adventure from way back when. 
even Beetlejuice, I think the television series, like the cartoon animated one, I think some of his work was in there. So he's well known for his scores in television and in films. Danny Elfman, big name, big fan. Mm -hmm. So along with him, I have some special effects teams. And there's one in particular. It's Image Animation, and they've done a lot of films that we've actually covered. They did some work on Event Horizon, Hellbound, Hellraiser. I mean, some pretty big films. If you've seen prosthetic work for the most part, and costume designs and creature features, then you've probably seen some of their works. So the producers I have, I have three different producers on this film. Gabriella Martinelli, Mark Allen Miller was the producer on the director's cut, and Joe Roth was an executive producer on this film. The production companies are Morgan Creek Entertainment Group and Seraphim Films. They were the production company for the director's cut. Our distributors for this are J&M Entertainment. They help with the 1990 non-USA theatrical releases. And 20th Century Fox, they did the 1990 USA theatrical release. And we've already talked about them, but Scream and Shout Factory released the edition that we've actually watched, the 2014 Blu-ray and DVD. The release date on this film was February 16th here in the States in 1990, and it had a later date in 1990, September 28th in the United Kingdom. The budget for this film was actually a pretty heavy budget considering the time period. It was $11 million. Uh, $11 million, okay. Yeah, the opening weekend, it made $3.7 million here in the States. That was dated February 19th of 1990, and it grossed $8.9 million. So it didn't quite meet its return, and there was a big reason for that. I'm sure it did in home video. Oh, I'm quite sure yeah, over the course of its life now because it's film is almost 30 years old <laughs> it's crazy to think about that but i do have a few taglines in this film it's got some uh, pretty in, before pretty we good ones. before we move completely out of people behind the scenes and taglines and then into the actors there's one other person who worked on some of the art in this movie that deserves a very special mention yeah because sure. of who he is towards the end of principal photography clive barker brought on to paint the mats for the necropolis and I think possibly one or two of the other backgrounds. I noticed I that there that, was yeah. at least three matte backgrounds. Yeah, you know they're what you're pretty noticeable. For, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the necropolis for sure. And the prophecy wall. Okay. I know what you're talking about. Were done by a band by the name of Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie is huge because he did the concept art for Star Wars and for Battlestar Galactica. Wow. Even up into the new trilogy, they have been using Ralph McQuarrie designs to awesome. fill in backgrounds and just design of armor and creatures and characters. I definitely see why. They've still been going into like the back catalog. That's awesome. Just as an example off the top of my head, in The Force Awakens, when Rey is running out to grab the Millennium Falcon... There's an arch in the background that is a Ralph McQuarrie design oh. that was an unused concept for uh, Jabba's Palace. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Nice. Well, I'm mean, glad you're mentioning that because that is a big name, especially in cinema. Yeah. So when I noticed that he did anything on this, I was like, oh my God. Like, That's, That's awesome. huge. He designed... I mean, all he did was the necropolis in this for sure and the wall. But those are both really big parts of really what. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Of this movie, honestly. So. Yeah, huge plots in the film. Mm -hmm. And the Necropolis looks beautiful, it even does. for. I mean. Considering, I mean, yeah. it's dated, but it still looks good for that time period. So, before we get out of this little part, I've got three taglines for this film. The first tagline I have is At last, 
The Knight Has a Hero. Okay, I kind of like that. I don't know how I would market this movie either, so I kind of understand the problem that yeah. they ran into. But <laughs> Quite understandable. Second tagline I have is, Lori thought she knew everything about her boyfriend. Lori was wrong. Eh, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of vague. Thriller. You could use that actually for like a, a lot of different style of film. The third one I have, Come Meet the Dead of Night. That might be my favorite one. It's pretty I, decent. I kind of like that. Nice. So yeah, that kind of rounds out my taglines, the budget, all that good stuff, some of the people who went into making this film. Now we get to talk about the cast. So I don't really want to skip over them, and I think we should say a brief bit about them all. Yeah. But I can think of at least four members of the cast right now that we've already talked about because yes. they were all in the same movie together. Yeah, we've kind of already glossed over that fact. Because Clive Barker tends to like to use a lot of actors and people that he's worked with in the past. So Doug Bradley's in this movie. Doug Bradley is probably best known as Pinhead. Yeah, the for leader sure. The Cenobites. Cenobites? Well, Cenobites? Cenobites, Cenobites, yeah. He's been in, what, six or seven of the films? Mm-hmm. So he's pretty well known at this point. Especially uh, more. The other three names, not as well known. But Oliver Parker, Nicholas Vince, and Simon Bamford. Also yeah. all appear in this movie. Oliver Parker was in both Hellraiser and Hellbound Hellraiser 2, but not as a Cenobite. He no, was just like Frank? background. I think. No, he no. was uh, He was one of the moving men. Oh, yeah, one. yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and he was he a moving was, man in both yeah. of the films. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Which is kind of funny when you think uh, about that. But he's Pelican. Yeah, in that. badass character. I've got a couple of his other credits. He's only been in two other things that's worth mentioning. He was in an Eric Idle film, actually, called Nuns on the Run. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty decent film. And a more recent film called An Ideal Husband. You had mentioned Nicholas Vince. His character is Kinski. You're right. He was in Hellraiser 1 and Hellbound Hellraiser 2 because... He's Chatterer. Yes, he is. Which, that was dope. I was like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Yeah, that's got a fucked up story, too. The Chatterer. All right, he's been in two other credits I have. The Hairy Hands. Yes, you did hear that correct. And a film called Mindless. And then... Uh, we talked about Simon Bamford. I Simon did want to mention Bamford. him, too. His character is Anaka in this film. And you did mention he was in Hellraiser 1 and Hellbound Hellraiser 2. So Onaka did not ring any bells with me. Not at I first. Had, and I had to read through like the summary and shit to figure it out. Onaka, in my notes, is Rat Boy. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> So with that, he's also Butterball Cenobite, which I thought was really cool. That's cool, too. Out of makeup, there's no way you could tell. No, fuck no. There's no way you're ever going to recognize him. He's got a few credits I want to mention. One of them kind of goes back with a band. It seems like a common thread. We're talking about bands today. But he was in The Who's Quadrophenia way back in the 70s. You might have also seen his work in Book of Blood, Dead of the Night, Starfish, and I didn't realize this. I've actually got a copy of it. And there's an actor, Roddy McDowell, who actually played this character in the film, but the film I'm talking about is Fright Night. But in the documentary, You're, You're So, so cool, cool, Brewster, Brewster, the story of Fright Night, he plays Peter Vincent. Oh, okay. And I was like, what? I was like, hold on. So I put that on, and within the first couple of seconds, he pops out of a coffin, and I was like, oh, he's like portraying Peter Vincent in this documentary. It's like, all right, that makes more sense. Because Roddy McDowell has long since passed, unfortunately. But yeah, those are some of his other credits. So yeah, those are some of the more recognizable, I guess, people that Clive Barker likes to use in his films. 
we were on the subject of bands for a second, and I did think that this was funny that we ended up talking about Doug Bradley this week. Yeah. Because he provided narration for Is Cradle it? of Filth's yeah. album Midian, which has at least one song based on this movie, and then the rest of it is sort of inspired by this movie. Okay. And I was thinking about Cradle of Filth extensively earlier in this oh, week because cool. I was on the subject of extreme metal with a friend and trying to explain the difference between death metal and black metal. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's funny because I was revisiting Troll Hunter this week because of the Instagram. <laughs> and of course, we talked about black metal. So yeah, there is a difference, which is funny. I do want to mention a couple of Doug Bradley's credits outside of Hellraiser. He was in the film Dominator. He was in the director video, I believe, Pumpkinhead. That film was Ashes to Ashes. He was in a film called The Cottage, Exorcismus, and The Book of Blood as well. So I wanted to mention a few of those. Now, we do have a couple of actors and actresses on this who have been in some pretty cool works. And our protagonist in this film, Craig Sheffer. Aaron Boone, is that right? Aaron Boone, yeah. I'll reserve what he goes by a little bit later on. (laughs) Well, I remember him best from the program. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think we've even talked we've about talked that. We've talked about the program a couple times. Great football movie. Yeah, that's I where it. I remember him best from. I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but that was filmed in my home state of South Carolina. I think I told you my uncle went down there to try out, has like a walk-on for some of the football scenes, because he played football. And at the time, because it was shot in the 90s, Shannon Sharp's brother, Sterling Sharp, was playing at South Carolina. And my uncle got to meet him. But yeah, that was kind of neat. So there's kind nice. of a cool tie into my family. But yeah, I really enjoy that film. Well, if we're going to talk about goddamn home states, yeah. then he was oh. also in A River Runs Through It. Yeah, right here. here in Montana. It's so. really cool, dude. Yeah, so those are some of his more well-known. He's also voiced some character. Well, actually, the character of Mick, I believe, in the 1986 and 87 animated Teen Wolf. I was like, holy shit, I actually watched that growing up. I think it was part of the Saturday morning lineup. Well, I never watched it, but a shit ton of people watch One Tree Hill, and he was in that. He certainly is. He's uh, Keith Scott. Yeah. Uh, That name means nothing. Nothing to me either. I never watched it. Now, he's in a film with D.B. Sweeney. It's a really cool film, especially if you're into UFO abductions and shit like that. But that film is Fire in the Sky. He was also in Hellraiser Inferno, and he was in a film called Ritual. And more recently, he was in Badass. Oh, Badass is a good movie. Yeah. No, I mean, he's been in a lot of... He's been in a lot of B-status films. He kind of likes to keep a low profile. I mean, he's got an extensive catalog, but there's a lot of films I've never seen. All right, so the woman who plays his girlfriend in this film is an actress. Her name is Ann Bobby. She plays Lori Winston. We've actually talked about this film, but she was in Born on the 4th of July. She was in the television series Mad About You. She was also in the film Beautiful Girls, a film that's really fucked up. It's a Todd Solondz film. It's called Happiness, and she's lent her voice in a pretty major video game franchise. I was going to say, I'm probably actually best familiar with her as uh, Bridget Tenenbaum. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. The Bioshock series. Yeah, now she's also a stage actress. She sings in a couple of different bands. She was actually in a television series. It's a cop-based series from the 80s that's a musical, so it was a little bit of ahead of its time. Like, the cops would break out in song. Are you saying the time has come for cop-based musicals? Because I'm not sure that we've really encountered that explosion yet. I can't say that we have either. <laughs> yeah, that so, was actually called cop So it's rock. still ahead of its time. <laughs> Jesus, it's yeah. time is coming. Cop-based musicals are going to get their due Which one of these days. kind of neat, man. So, one of these days. You never know. 
Yeah, so those are some of her more familiar credits. Now, she's also an author, and I learned that she works a lot with dogs. So I'll mention that a little bit later, what that means. All right, now, there's a huge director who plays a huge part in this film. Yeah, uh, so playing Dr. Philip K. Decker, who dreams of electric sheep, I'm sure. He certainly does. I would imagine at some point he would. Goddamn, David fucking Cronenberg is in this movie and kills. He's so good. He's so good. (laughs) He is, man. So we've talked about Cronenberg before because we have covered his film Scanners. And because he was also in Jason X, which I thought was funny. But just right off the top of my head, some of his works as a director, I think uh, Videodrome, I've kind of mentioned that several times before. Uh, I always think of The Fly. That, Dead Ringers. The Fly. Naked Lunch. Did I mention this when we covered Scanners? Like, The Fly is one of the few movies that is so disgusting I don't like. Like, it makes me very squeamish. Oh, I mean... It's hard for me to watch that movie. Completely understand, because... Which David I Cronenberg. usually do not have that response to, like, hardly anything. And that movie, I do not it like looking gross. at that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I understand because I was going to mention that David Cronenberg is known for being a master of body horror. So a lot of his films deal with physical ailments and deterioration of the body. Oh, when we were mentioning subgenres earlier, we didn't mention that there's a huge body horror element to this movie. There certainly is. There's is really one cool. scene that is just like revels in body horror. So you're getting a little bit of everything <laughs> with this movie. Totally agree with that. Now, one of his more recent works, he's been in television series, but the one that I have that he kind of recurs on is Alias Grace. I don't know much about it, but it's like, good for him. But yeah, I mean, he's more known for being a director of horror, of course. So the next actor that I do have on this film is Charles, I'm not sure if it's pronounced Hade or Head, but he plays Captain Eigerman in this. He's got a few credits I'd like to mention. He was in the film Altered States. Highly recommend that one. He was in the Hill Street Blues television series from 1981 through 1987. He was in a film called Cop. You might have seen him in The Rescue, and he was a part of the third Watch television series from 2003 through 2005. So I thought those are some pretty cool credits. I do want to point out real yeah. quick, actually, those were his acting credits. He's transitioned to being a television director. Oh, yeah, that's probably a good point to break up. He does have a Director's Guild Award nomination for an episode cool. of ER. Nice. And he's directed on, like, Nip Tuck, Sons of Anarchy, oh, Breaking yeah. Bad. There you go. So Definitely worth bringing up. So cool. I mean, that's a good transition for him. He actually was pretty decent in this film, given his role. I mentioned that we have Hugh Corshi on this film. Now he plays Detective Joyce. You might have seen him in some films. One kind of jumped out to me because I was like, hold on, I think I own this film. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I don't have that film. Captain Panaka. Don't have that film either. That's the only thing I immediately recognized him as, but then I saw what I think you're going to bring up. Well, maybe not. Ooh, I'm not going to say that. I think... Because now I'm looking at it, I'm like, you might have watched a few of these. There's only one more that real... Oh, ooh, there's two of them that I could say, but... Okay, so I'll bring up some more recent roles, and then I'll go back to the old ones. And that's the reason why I'll mention those. So he was in Wing Commander, which we've talked about Matthew Lillard. I don't own that film, so that's not it. Damn it. You mentioned Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. I don't own that, but he was in that. Now, he was also in Doctor Who in 2007, the television series. And he was in the more recent film, Red Sparrow... 
But I want to go back a little bit. Now, I do own Highlander, but that's not the film I was talking oh, about. See, that's what I was going to guess was Highlander. No. He's in a film called The Church. And the reason I say I own that one is because it's a Dario Argento production, but it was directed by Michel Chauvet. It's an Italian film. has Asia Argento in it. Yeah. So I was like, holy shit, I actually own that film. <laughs> I didn't realize he was in it. So that was cool. All right. Now, the next actress is Catherine Chevalier. She plays Rachel. Now, she was in a film as well that we've mentioned. We've mentioned several times now, but she played Tiffany's mom in Hellbound, Hellraiser Part 2. And she was also in a film called Stormy Monday. So there's some of her more well-known works. The next person I have on this is Malcolm Smith. He plays Ashbury. Now, he was in two films I have, and that is Murder by Phone and The Creation of the Humanoids. There's a few other people I'll mention. Their characters... Most of these are their film debut and their one and only film credit. So a couple of these people that recur in this film I have are Christine McCorkendale. She plays Shuna Sassi in this film. Badass character. Tony Bluto, he plays Leroy Gom. And Bernard Henry, he plays Baphomet. And like I said, every one of those actors and actresses, this is their one and only film credit. Now there is an actress I do want to mention. She's got an interesting catalog of film credits. Now, this is Deborah Weston. She plays Cheryl Ann in this film. And I looked up some of her credits. She's not, you know, in this film very long. But mm-hmm. she was in Patriot Games. She was a reporter in that film. She was in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That was the Johnny Depp one. She's a, a woman in shop. Now, there was a film I went back and kind of don't want to admit I've seen it. But kind of like, I don't give a fuck because I was a kid. So it doesn't really matter. But she was a kid in King Arthur's Court mom in that film. Oh, shit. I so th- it starred that kid from American Pie? Yeah, I saw a kid in King Arthur's Court in the theater. Yeah, so it was like, not that I would have recognized her in the film, but yeah, she played the mom in that. So I did want to mention her. She's got a couple of memorable credits worth mentioning. Uh, did we mention Hugh Ross? Because he's in Train Spotting, so we should probably mention Oh, yeah, yeah, th- uh, you're right. So uh, he plays Narciss or Narcissus, yeah, in this film. You're right, he was in Train Spotting. You might have seen him in the Patriot Games. Uh, Hannibal Rising. Yeah, he was in Bronson, which is a pretty decent film. And he's also in Dorian Gray. Now, Hugh is known for being more of a Shakespearean stage actor. I'll mention his friendship with Craig Sheffer a little bit later on, but there's some pretty interesting people in this film. Now, there's a- all kinds of other credits. There's some cameos I'm going to mention later on, because... Uh, a couple of horror authors, right? A couple of horror authors. Actually, a couple of people in cinema. One mm. really big name. So, didn't realize it. Just a cameo. Probably won't even recognize him in that part of the film. But anyhow, that's the cast. That's the crew. That's are lines. these cameos hidden in Midian? No, actually, they're not. Because I would hit, hide a shit ton of cameras. Oh, you certainly Midian. could, man. Considering, <laughs> considering. But no, these are like in some of the wide open spaces. Okay. Yeah, like that rounds out the cast, the crew. We gave you a brief plot summary synopsis. We got to give you some warnings. Warnings. There's ooh, monsters. Decently graphic violence. Yeah, Not the I, worst, but no. pretty graphic. Yeah, at times, especially it is like graphic. Narcisse, like when he. Yeah, that particular scene. Yeah, so it gets pretty. We yeah, mentioned body you, horror, right? Yeah, there's body horror. Like, oh yeah, these monsters. I mean, like, cussing. You can look up the trailer for this really easily on YouTube, and the monsters they show you aren't as bad as it gets. No, 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 no I agree with that. It's Clive Barker, so there's almost always going to be some sort of weird, sexy time. So there is like boobs. Up. Yeah, there's a little some, bit of sexual content. A little bit. There's boobs you want to see, and a couple boobs you uh, maybe want to see. 
I mean, I'm not going to judge. Yeah, I'm not judging. <laughs> we mentioned if you're not comfortable with, like, supernatural stuff, spirituality perhaps. I mean, at least one of the names they use oh, yeah, can yeah, really yeah. go towards, like, really nefarious devil worship. I totally agree with but that. But I kind of feel like in the mythology of this movie, yeah, it doesn't it's necessarily not mean that. I totally agree with that 100%. Yeah, so, I mean, aside from that, it's nothing that we haven't covered before as far as content-wise, you know, with, like, gore, and it doesn't even really hit those marks a lot. It covers the... Oh, and there's, like, slashery elements, too. Yeah. It's right at home with our catalog. It's a fun film. If you don't like fantasy elements, I suppose. A lot of explosions, a lot of gun work, too. I should mention that. Oh, yeah. Look, it's hard to talk about this movie because it goes so many fucking places. It does. And all of those places have its own version of violence and gore, I think. So <laughs> they do. Is this, fun? this movie doesn't really shy back that much. Not to say that it's just like a gore fest the entire no, way through. Not. That's not it at all. It's just it whenever there's it. a reason for it, it happens. Yeah, so. and you're going to get it. So, yeah. Aside from that, if you made it this far, I think it's time to let these folks know, how does that make us squeal? You. God, what's happening to me? God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh God, what? What's going on? Oh Jesus, come on! Oh my God, what's what's going on? Where where am I? Oh gee, why why? Come on, somebody, somebody! Ah, come on, come on, come on, come on, somebody! Sir. Somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's gotta be there. I will shock you. Come on, sir. Come on, sir. You must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? Yay, we finally get to talk about Nightbreed, Danny. I know, we've been bringing it up a lot. Probably more recently, more so than any other time. But for good reasons, and I'm glad that we chose this film. Probably for the same reasons that you enjoy it. Not only because it's a Clive Barker film and we get some recognizable characters, but this is actually a film I grew up with. Now, at the time that I had seen it, it was a weird film for me because I'd mentioned previously that I think it was like eight or nine when this came out. So when it came out for video rental, I was probably nine, ten-ish. Mm-hmm. And for that time period, man, it just it went right over my head. Some of those concepts and stuff, like, I wasn't paying attention to the story as much as I should have been. <laughs> but granted, I was nine and ten. My attention span wasn't quite there yet. Right. But I'm glad we're revisiting it. Yeah, this see, is a brilliant film. I didn't grow up with it. I first discovered it, oh, I don't remember when, but in my 20s for sure. Okay. Like, But fucking fantastic film. I dig like humans are the real monster stories. We kind of talked about that when we mentioned Shape of Water earlier this year. Yeah, exactly. That's a good film to reference for that. Um, and this movie fits straight in because, I mean, oh yeah, this is the spoiler section. <laughs> Decker is definitely the biggest monster in this movie. Oh, he certainly is. Overall, yeah. No As... Button eye or whatever. Yeah, which that fucking mask is good. Fucking creepy, dude. I love it. Even his performance, even though it's like very monotone, it's very methodical, but he portrays the character perfect and it's creepy as fuck. Now, so I already posted this up on Instagram while I was watching the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I thought I saw that. I was like, yeah, that's funny as hell. (laughs) So if you don't follow us on Instagram, you should so you can get shit like this when I just have to share shit with the world, which I'm going to try to do a little bit more often. But my very first note in this movie while rewatching through it was as we pan over (laughs) the prophecy mural, it appears that Deadpool is part of the prophecy. I know you mentioned you saw it already, but I do have the picture just right here. Yeah, just once I mean, again. 
if you catch it like that, it looks just like Deadpool. Either that, Deadpool was there and just like crayoned himself into it. I like, can see that. Fucking Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> but what do you think of this movie if it would have had Deadpool? <laughs> Holy shit. This movie would have ratcheted up the violence and gore a lot if that were the case. And the comedy relief, too. Oh, there are lots of funny bits in there this are. movie. There are. I've actually, in my notes, I've got some lines I want to mention later on. But yeah, it does have some really good comedy bits in it. Cool. So how do you want to start talking about this movie? Because there's kind of a lot of this movie there is that a lot we could potentially talk about. Right. Not that I have to go in order, but in, you know, in terms of my notes. But probably the biggest thing that we should mention is the fact that its major theme and just the idea or the concept of this mythical place called Midian Right. Right. So the movie starts off that way. You don't really understand what's going on at first. You just see these creatures. Someone's getting pursued. When the person wakes up, we realize it's Aaron Boone. And apparently he's been having these recurring dreams of this place. And much later on, we kind of find out part of the reason why and what it involves. But Midian itself is a biblical term. It's used in the Bible. And that place... Not only is it considered a place, not necessarily that it was a place, but because there was a tribe of Midianites that were there at the time. So during the time of Moses, if you believe in all that stuff, that's the area where he got lost for 40 years and was exiled out of Egypt. Midian was long thought to be a place and is still often... I mean, there's an area that they kind of call Midian because they're like, this kind of seems like it would be if we're following all of this, right? Exactly. But it seems like it was more just like a league of tribes that all descended from Abraham and yeah, which was... Uh, the son of was it Abraham or yeah, one of his concubines? I know there's a lot of that shit because part of that too. This is you know if you're familiar with the Bible, this is the place where God appeared to Moses as the burning bush and commanded him to kill the Midianites, and that included the kings of Midian mm-hmm. and just everybody that was there, but to protect the Moabites, which the Moabs was the descendants of Moab, who was the son of Lot. And if you're familiar with that story. Lot's wife died because she turned around during the destruction mm-hmm. of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in order to carry on his lineage, he had to procreate with his daughters. <laughs> so this is an incestuous family. It's like, that's kind of weird that God wants to protect an incest family. <laughs> so anyway, when you think about it, maybe in those terms, it kind of makes sense a little bit allegorically, maybe biblically, you know. So I did want to mention that. Like, it has a big tie-in, and I mentioned that Clive Barker likes to use spirituality and Christian references. And it's kind of weird. I read that. I think it was in, like, Real Time with Bill Maher or maybe Politically Incorrect or one of those shows that Bill Maher was hosting at the time. He was a guest on, and Ann Coulter was too, and she was kind of grilling him about his not being religious, and he admitted that he was a Christian, but then he recanted. So mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of interesting. But anyway... It's kind of interesting that he would use that title, even though it's a biblical reference. Right. Well, we just got done talking about Helsing not too long ago. Yeah. Oh, and like shit. the full vampires he considered, like the true monstrous vampires he also called Midians. And I was wondering if maybe, mm, that's a good if point. maybe, uh, God, why can't I think of the, the author, if he did that intentionally as a callback to Nightbreed. Huh. I'm kind of curious about that because I noticed some references in this film they were using, but pop culture is using, I believe. I want to mention those in a little while. So Midian, we have like this monster city, but I mean, the obvious message in this movie is it's kind of a gay parable, especially with Clive being an openly gay man. Yeah. Which, that kind of works into a few thing. of his stories. And actually, Yodorowsky. 
Oh yeah, Alejandro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He praised this movie as being the first like dark gay fantasy or something like that. I did read a little snippet about that, and then that's kind um, of interesting. The first truly gay horror fantasy epic. But he was commenting more on he thought that there was a giant gay relationship, unconsummated relationship that oh, drove yeah. the plot I, I know you're saying. between Boone and Decker. and Decker, yeah. which I didn't see as much until the very end. Yeah, I can see that a little bit. There's a little bit of it at play when he visits him because of this major plot story, you know. Mm-hmm. Not that you would pick up on it at first, but after a couple times viewing it, it's like, ah, uh, little. It's very, very, very subtle if you want to read into it that way. But Midian really is, you know, it's a place that protects the other. Yeah. Whatever the other might be. And it, that's metaphor. the thing. I felt like the easy metaphor was the gay parable. Yeah, I can and like, that. And when I saw Yodorowsky commented on it as well i was like oh well i'm not the only one that picked up on it at least but i felt like midian is a little bit more because you can choose to try to become a midianite because the old man mentioned doing it yeah he knows Um, a lot and i feel like barker wouldn't be trying to be like oh you can choose to be gay you know what i mean it's interesting you bring that up is I was reading that Clive Barker said when he was like 18, 19, at that age, he was really like, for whatever reasons, he was developing these relationships with much older women. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, finding out, you know, through his sexuality, he's like, no, he's, you know, he's openly homosexual, like you said. But I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, not that he was dabbling in heterosexuality, but he was, it was almost like he was figuring himself out at that time period, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think there's more to it. I think that's the easy one that's really easy. It's kind of easy to pick up on whenever oh, you there's have a, commu- whenever you have a community like this. Yeah. But as I went through and I was like looking through the notes and stuff, part of the idea was just like, it gets spelled out in the movie. It's like when you dream, you dream of being able to oh, do yeah, all it was these Rachel. things. Yeah. Yeah, it's Rachel. That's right. I yeah. can't think of her name. It's okay. When you dream, you dream of being able to do these things. And one of the quotes that Barker had about creating this was that was kind of the starting point. I'm still wondering how he got to the point of making them so monstrous. You know, that's a good point. The way I look at it, too, is is another metaphor for, of course, outcasts and people who are downtrodden or, you know, they're in these subcultural groups, you know? Mm -hmm. Like I said, it could be punks, geeks, gay. You know, it could fit into that community, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's another metaphor that he's using. But, I mean, of course, there's larger things at play for him. That's the thing. Then it gets... I don't feel like it gets muddled. I feel like everything in this movie is very well thought out. But things do get confusing with Baphomet and the fact that they do seem to have a religion of sorts built around Baphomet. And there is, like, prophecy. And he did mention also that with this he was trying to build the Star Wars of horror movies. Yeah, I saw that. And that's kind of what the studio wanted. They gave him a bigger budget, of course. I was reading that. The Hellraiser, something like a $2 million budget or some shit like that. So they gave him five times the amount. Yeah, they wanted that Star Wars of horror. And that makes sense. I mean, Star Wars very much... Oh, there's a lot of a fantasy movie, and this very much is a fantasy movie. It certainly is. Midian might as well be the Mos Eisley Cantina. (laughs) Yeah, that's a perfect analogy of it. Yeah, Midian might as well be the Mos Eisley Cantina. Fucking Boone is the chosen one. He's Luke. He's, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's definitely the hero. It's cool because this movie works on so many levels. It is so grand. Yeah, it certainly is. Midian is such a cool place because it's not a place of just good guys. Nightbreed aren't automatically good guys, no. as fucking 
Red Dread. Yeah, dude. Oh my gosh. Red so Dread good. Redemption sort of shows. <laughs> oh shit. Peliquin. He's so good, man. I like some of his lines. I was mentioning lines in this film now. Between he and Narcisse. Narcisse, yeah. They have some of the more quotable lines in this film. Fucking Cronenberg a bit, too. Oh, no, he does. He certainly does. Ooh. Yeah, there's a lot of memorable quotes, but I wanted to talk about a few of theirs. You had mentioned like the play on like homosexuality a little bit. There's a scene that Narcisse has with Onaka, and he's kind of like, oh yeah, he's like with the tattoos. He's like, oh, sailors. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's you know, there you go. There's a little bit of that at play there, but some of the lines that I liked with Pelican is even at the beginning of the film where Boone goes to visit Midian after he encounters Narcisse as a human, I suppose, mm-hmm. before he's a nightbreed gets all the directions all the good stuff and anyhow he gets nabbed by him and kinski a little moon-shaped face guy and they were like you know having this exchange he was like you know yeah i've, I've killed like 15 people and he's like shut the fuck up right he tells him stuff like that and he, he's like no i have he's like who told you that he doesn't say it was decker but he's like you asshole he's fucking lying <laughs> you know he says stuff he's super blunt and some of the stuff he says He's got one that I like, too, Pelican, that is, where he talks about everything is true, everything is real. He says, God's an astronaut, Oz is over the rainbow. He says, Midian is where the monsters live. You know, it's like, he's telling them everything's possible at this point, you know. Midian truly is where the monsters live, too. Midian is the scene that's probably going to make people most squeamish in this movie, other than maybe the flashback. Flashback's really good. I mean, it's a little quick, but I mean, enough to where you know what the fuck is going on. But that's another one of those things, too, with... I was talking about the use of, you know, whether it's the church or spirituality or Christianity, but it shows... It looks kind of like an Inquisition of sorts. I was about to say, it's like the Spanish Inquisition, the craziest parts. (sighs) Yeah, it's like the super dark, almost goes beyond the Marquet de Sade. It's fucking Witchfinder General shit. Yeah, like ramped up... So I kind of segued us into it a little bit because I love that past flashback because I have read some Clive Barker and that past flashback visually was like reading some of his more disturbing passages. Like it evoked all the same emotions. I was like, oh, this is fucking Clive Barker. This right here, like this is the crazy shit that he brings us. Like this is fucking brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, once again, just made me kind of appreciate the same sort of crazy-ass visuals that the boys of Baskin brought us and yeah. why I feel like they still need to do shit oh with Clive. <laughs> gosh, man. That would be a perfect collaboration. I mean, we've already talked about the fact that... It, we, we will keep like bringing this up until it happens. Yeah, or a Hellraiser that needs to be we, reimagined. <laughs> we are the biggest fan for this thing that will probably never happen, but... We'll pitch it at least, <laughs> fucking hell. You never know. But yeah, that would be our leading vote. If anybody gets the reins of the Hellraiser, we need John mm-hmm. on that, yeah. I love that past flashback, though. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a really cool scene, because that's when Lori encounters Babette and Rachel, and which is kind of an interesting way that she gets introduced to Midian and to the monsters or the Nightbreed. And Babette, she's like this creature. I mean, she is a creature, you know, but she's out in the sunlight, and you're like, oh, damn, that's kind of... It's kind of sad, like her all bug-eyed, and you don't, you're not quite sure what it is. Now, I mean, all that's animatronics. Yeah, that's how she learns about Midian and all that stuff. It's pretty interesting. So, speaking of which, getting into that, does this count as a vampire movie? It, 
you know, that's actually my very last note. I was like, if you look at the story as itself, just from Boone and Lori, for the most part, I mean, even with Pelican because of the bite, there is that Dracula, like, you're keeping this essence alive, you know, and it's usually through a, a bite, and there's mm-hmm. a love story connection as well, so there's certainly that at play. So the movie... And at night. The movie muddles <laughs> things some because... The movie mentions that some of them die in sunlight, but not all of them. Right. Now, in the novella, Cabal's the only one that can withstand sunlight. Oh. So is this a vampire movie? I, that's what I'm saying. I mean, there's a lot of parallels to that. I mean, it's a good point you bring up. And there's a reason why I wrote it down, too. It's like, yeah, the sunlight's big. There's coffins in this fucking film people are sleeping in and shit. And the use of night as a cover... Part of what's pointed out about the Nightbreed is that basically all of these creatures from folklore were Nightbreed, Mm -hmm. and humans get envious and would kill them. Exactly. And that's why they say, you know... They want this power that these naturally have. What you're envy of, you kill. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, that kind of ties back into what she said about the dream aspect. When you dream, you dream of us, what we do, what you can't do. So yeah. So folklore, vampires, it kind of still all fits. Totally agree. Tribes of the Moon. That could be werewolves, though. It could be. Yeah, and I like the use of that. Precisely. They mentioned shapeshifters. She turns to smoke. That's fucking Dracula. Yeah, dude. They can smell blood. When they taste blood, they turn to the beast. And Boone is basically just a daywalker Buffy vampire. Yeah, dude. (laughs) I'm glad he doesn't glitter. Yeah, Jesus. He looks kind of like David Boreanaz at times in this movie. Does. <laughs> I like Craig Sheffer a lot, but there's a couple scenes that's like, this dude's got a big old head. <laughs> I mean, it's no offense, but I was like, damn, he's got a big head. Like, he is kind of perfect for that role, you yeah. know, especially when he has that transition. But, and even minus the runes, when he transitions to Cabal. Yeah. Which, but, like, you know, we talked about He kind of looks like a Buffy vamp. He kind of does. He really does. <laughs> he really looks like a Buffy fan. That's funny, but yeah, he does. I like his role a but lot. But he's a daywalker. He certainly he's Blade. is. Yeah, he can go out in the daylight. Now, everybody else has to have some kind of cover for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With some of those two. Oh, is, well, Narcisse seems like he can go out. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, he, he does have that cowboy hat on, but skin-wise, mm-hmm. you know, doesn't really... I don't know. Not as much. And right. maybe Rachel? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, she wears her shawl, but... I guess it depends on how much direct sunlight you get. Like I said, though, in the novella, he's the only one. So, yeah. and Makes sense. normally I don't like like this is a weird example of like picking apart differences because the same guy did it all. Yeah, but we talked about or we alluded to the fact that how much there was this interference and it was from the studio. Oh, and we mentioned a bunch of different cuts. Maybe we should yeah. take the time to explain oh, man, all this yeah, for we a second. Totally should. <laughs> Uh, so this movie was originally more like Jesus, two hundred and fifty, I think. Oh, you know, like the Cabal cut. If we're talking like that, yeah. So no, Clive Barker's cut was a long cut is yeah. like a two and a half or longer movie. Like yeah. what was originally filmed and what he wanted yeah. to all be done. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, th- it was so sent to the MPAA like twelve times before it finally got a rating. <laughs> all sorts of shit had to be cut just because of that. But yeah. then. The studio also didn't know how to market it. Yeah. They uh, wanted something completely different than what he was offering, in a sense. And they made them make cuts as well, just to put it out. Yeah. So the theatrical cut is an hour 20. Yeah, exactly. And it's very convoluted in the storytelling. 
So then, years later, they found footage here and there, mm-hmm. and then a version was cobbled together that was known as the Cabal Cut, right. made from two different VHSs that were basically two and a half plus hours of footage, but minus some of the reshoots that took place after. Yeah, exactly. And those were screened at like some horror festivals and stuff. Which I thought was really cool, too. <clears throat> and you're right. Interesting story about that is I was talking about the guy who helped produce the director's cut. Now, he was the one that kind of spurred that on. Mm-hmm. And those copies they found for the Cabal Cut were found in storage units. And they talked about that. He's like, yeah, there was this... Some of that stuff was so damaged because it was so old and it's been sitting there God knows how long. But yeah, they cobbled all that stuff together for that Cabal Cut. And so then... Out of all of that came the director's cut, which we both watched, oh, that's so good. <laughs> which is closer to two hours. It's right at two hours. So it's what, right at two hours. What they had done was they used some of the theatrical stuff. They took like 20 minutes of some of those scenes out, replaced it with 45 overall minutes, some of it to supplant and some of it to carry on the narrative better. Mm-hmm. So yeah. A different ending than if you've only ever seen the theatrical version same ending as the cabal cut obviously but with the reshoots that flesh out decker which the cabal cut was missing yeah which is interesting so i haven't seen the cabal but i have seen theatrical like i said that was when i was young so i don't remember much of it and i didn't bother to go back to watch it it's like i've already got director's cut yeah i'm good with that so yeah but there are some subtle differences amongst all three of them Apparently, like, one of the execs at one point told Barker that he's unintentionally making the monsters too sympathetic. Yeah, he's like, that's the fucking point. (laughs) It's like, Jesus Christ, man, what do you want? (laughs) Like, you know this is based off of one of my fucking books, right? (laughs) What the hell? Yeah, so you're right, they marked it more as, like, a slasher with monster elements, but you don't really understand the monsters, their whole device in this film. But yeah, it's a fantasy based around a monster world that's about to be wiped out exactly so with that that topic is it kind of goes back to one of my first notes about how these characters the monsters in this film and you know spurred on by the prophecy of boone turning into cabal and what that means for midian as a whole but the cops they're like excessive in this even cronenberg's character decker he spurs almost all this shit on and he's very calculating in how he spurs that on, and his use of words in this film are very interesting. I was noticing that. Not only that, but if you pay attention to some of the shit on his walls, he has masks, and he makes references to people wear different masks, and you know they put on different faces, and they change. So I was like, wow, I'm kind of picking up on some of the shit he says. If you pay attention, he's telling you what the fuck he's doing. I mean, if you want to talk about visuals around Decker, first off, we've already mentioned his mask is dope, but one of the coolest visual things I thought in the movie was the pullout over the conference table, littered with his knives, but not littered, like, meticulously laid out. And even, like, this, I don't know if it was an acrylic or whatever was behind him, but Mm -hmm. it looked like either the mask or, like, some killings. That visually was stunning. And then where it was at in the movie with him listening to the recording, where it was almost like Boone was taunting him beforehand, which is impossible, but it's one of those things like when you're listening to it and it all clicks and he gets pissed and shit. I fucking love that scene. That is a very pivotal point in the film, too. You realize that Boone is telling him that in his dream in Midian, like 
he's dead, but he's is alive in a, in a sense. He's like he goes beyond death. He's still functional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of where you're at in the movie, <laughs> you realize what's going on. Yeah, he gets super pissed, and then he spurs on that whole manhunt. That and Decker coming face to face with Laurie are probably my favorite two moments with him. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, oh, that's right. That is a problem. Yeah. And then takes, takes off, off the mask. Reveals himself. Oh, my God. And all of his expressions and delivery. Cronenberg fucking kills, dude. Yeah, he, he does. does so good. Literally. But he does. He gives a brilliant performance. I was like, damn, I didn't realize how good of an actor he is considering he was only in Jason X for a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... I know he's a great director, but yeah, he has some acting chops for sure. So they took out 20 minutes, put back in 45 minutes, cut some things, alternate ending. I kind of think they only needed to put in about 42 minutes. And Uh we probably could have dropped having to listen to two-thirds of that goddamn song that Laurie sings. I'm so (laughs) glad to bring that up. All right. This is one of my notes, right? I was like, I want to mention that club scene and because there are some cameos I mentioned earlier. Not only that, I know the name of the place that it took place at. The place is called The Mean Fiddler. And yes, that was actually Lori singing. I looked it up. I was like, I wonder. I mean, of course, she's like lip syncing in the scene itself. But that was one of the scenes, I think, in the theatrical cut that was left out. Yeah. Because it's almost a music video. I kind of like it. <laughs> the reason I, I say that, I was like, that is one of the funniest fucking scenes and one of the most Canadian things I have seen in a long time. <laughs> we didn't mention that this is in Canada, did we? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, There's some really of it not is. much Canada stuff in this, though. Nah, I mean, they references the towns, of course, Calgary, Chernak, Peace River. I looked up some of those places. They do exist. Even Dwyer and places like that, which is kind of neat. Yeah, they're using references. Some of it was shot in Alberta. Most of it was shot in Pinewood Studios and Wrexham and Slough and some other places in England. So overall, yeah, this is set in Canada. Do you know how this is a Canadian movie? I was going to say there's a lot of Canucks. I, I, don't, of, know, I don't know exactly. The, uh, the monsters are nice. <laughs> oh, my God. The monsters are the good guys, eh? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that is fucking funny. Oh, we don't discriminate up here, eh? Oh, no, we don't. Like, you see that? There's no blue there. <laughs> Americans admitted that. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the fact that it is in Canada. And I think primarily because of Cronenberg. He has a huge hand in that, of course. Yeah, that scene itself, I do want to mention something. There is a difference between, I think, some of the cuts. I did see where in the behind the, the scenes and the making of a little featurette, Lori was talking about, or Ann Bobby, she was talking about that scene, like the way it was shot. It was a more emotional for Boone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because he comes in, he's all fucked up on lithium. Or he thinks it's lithium. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, he thinks it's lithium. Yeah, exactly. I was like, God damn, that he's fucked up, right? He not only that, but when Decker gives him the pills, like he he ate them bitches immediately. Like, yeah. Didn't ask any questions, didn't even look, just ate them. Yeah, he shows up, he's all fucked up. But I'm not sure if they use it in the cabal cut or whatnot, but yeah, he's like crying and shit and he gets all emotional. So I was like, Man, maybe he's on mushrooms. <laughs> but uh no, that's not what happens. Yeah, that whole scene, I understand why it could have been left out. But she did mention earlier that she was going to have a gig and she wants to meet up with them, yada, yada. It's kind of out of place a little bit, but let me bring this up to the cameos, two cameos in this. One of them, Neil Gaiman. Shut your fucking mouth. Dead serious. What? 
Yeah, Neil Gaiman is in that scene. Somewhere in the background. Oh, what the fuck? I am going to go over that fucking scene with the fine-tooth comb when we get done with this goddamn Which podcast. Which I was like, holy shit, man, that's kind of funny. And the other Peter... Oh, God damn it! how much am I going to have to listen to that stupid fucking song? Yeah. My note was, Johnny, Johnny get the song over Johnny with. <laughs> she says, give her the best lecture she's ever had. I'm like, oh my God. She wants a caveman. <laughs> she does. She kind of hams it up. She wants too. a brave man. So she wants a caveman. Fucking funny, man. I was gonna say it's the most Canadian thing I've seen in a long time. Now the other person who makes a cameo in that is a person. His name is Peter Atkins. He's a writer. He's done some screenplays. And when you see what I'm talking about here, some of the screenplays he's done were for uh, Hellbound, Hellraiser Two. He helped with the screenplay for that. And just about every single one of the Wishmaster movies. Oh, wow. Yeah, he wrote it. Fuck, we need to cover Wishmaster. (laughs) Are you familiar with Fist of the North Star? Yeah. Yeah, he helped write that. So I was like, damn, that's pretty cool. So, yeah, both of those guys were somewhere in that scene. And Ann Bobby said to you, like, her sister was on spring break from college and got to visit her. And she's somewhere in that scene. But she's like, she just liked the whole atmosphere of that scene. Like, everybody was just having fun and they were kind of squeezed into this tight place to make it look like everybody's getting into the music. I was like, man, that's so fucking, that's so Canadian. That's so 80s. <laughs> it's great, man. Yeah, but I did want to mention those two guys. Yeah, Jesus. Upon rewatch, having watched this now two days in a row, right? as we do for all of this, one of the things I noticed upon the rewatch kind of bugged me a little bit. A lot of the rest of my notes are kind of questions. That yeah, that's understandable. Lori seemed to take going through Midian rather well. Didn't really seem to fuck with her that much once no. she was out of it. No, I agree with you there. It's kind of funny. From what I, I didn't take going through Midian well. No, Jesus Christ, that place is like this is all kinds of crazy shit going on in there. There's a lot of yeah. It's for the most part. But like, apparently, according to Narcisse, for them it's like Shangri-La and dope. Oh yeah, that's another one of those quotable lines I wanted to mention. That could have been used as like a brief synopsis of this film. <laughs> Yeah, Shangri-La and dope sounds like or going through a bad trip. Yeah. You're experiencing what we used to call a bad trip, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I gave him some kind of concoction of hallucinogenics. You go on a bad trip through Shangri-La and dope Jesus is this movie. Christ. Yeah, I mean, the place itself is a labyrinth of sorts. It has all these different levels to it. Yeah, she just kind of meanders through it. Yeah, she gets startled, but nothing to throw her off course in... Part of that, you can look back on that kind of vampire, perhaps, connection, is she was saying that she felt like this was told from her standpoint or from her point of view as, like, just a unconditional love. Like, no matter what happens to Boone, she mm-hmm. was going to be there for him, and it didn't matter. She was going to go through hell or high water, for that matter. Well, and she's going through Midian at that point to try to find Boone. Boone, at that point, is in having a little fucking conversation. conversation. <laughs> With Baphomet. We learn later on that according to Narcisse, who has been in Midian for about three days now. Yeah, not very long. That nobody has went in to have a conversation with Baphomet and lived. They go in there, it seems, quite often. But usually shit doesn't happen and talking doesn't occur without somebody fucking dying. Exactly. How come none of the other Midianites... None of the other Nightbreed that actually live in Midian for more than who knows a how day long. Yeah, yeah. seem to, other than Rachel, right, right. who goes along for the ride, seem to give a shit that Boone comes out of there alive. Yeah. Pelican even sees him. 
That's a good point, man. That's a very good point. Now, that kind of gets back to what I was talking about in my notes where I wanted to talk about like foreshadowing and the prophecy, of course, and importance of Pelican, too, in this. Not only does Decker initiate a lot of this stuff, like how that stuff gets spurred on, but if it wasn't for Narcisse introducing him to where Midian's located, and if it wasn't for Pelican actually biting Boone while they were in the cemetery, none of that prophecy could have been fulfilled. And he knows the prophecy and it's exactly what it looks like, wall. and he still does it. <laughs> I didn't believe in it, but I helped spurt it on. <laughs> but I ran into a situation that looked exactly like a situation on the prophecy. Yeah, but that's the thing about this film, and I'm starting to notice it a little bit more. I'm getting into watching films. There's a lot of films that will tell you how these fucking films are going to play out. You just have to read the signs. You know, it's hidden in plain sight. Okay. So, you actually led me into something else that I couldn't help but think about while watching this. We know that it is currently being turned into a TV show. So I started thinking about how would I like to see it done as a TV show? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have to expand it. Oh, yeah, for certain. I mean, first off, as we keep pointing out, this is ripe for expanding. This definitely lays a framework that you can build a lot of shit off of. I would kind of imagine that this movie could be the entire first season pretty easy. You'd still have to expand things to flesh things out. And Pelican, I think, is one of the things that would be the easiest to flesh out. So, writers of the TV show, if you're out there, I'm going to give you these ideas for free. Start off with a show him out fucking causing trouble. Lean into the fucking vampire bit where... He's off fucking causing trouble. We already know that he doesn't mind going and breaking the law and having a fucking snack sometimes. And have Boone, for some reason, be really injured when he shows up. Or Pelican, having been in a tussle with the locals, be really hungry when Boone shows up. And that's why he can't help but fulfill the prophecy. He's not even in his right head. He's unleashed the beast at that point. That's a good point, yeah. Very good point. Other things I just want to see expanded, because I'm on the topic, towards the end of the movie, when the fucking sheriff starts calling him and all of his redneck buddies the Sons of the Free, right there, just give me more whatever fucking redneck bullshit they're on, yeah. I think would just make an interesting Good plot. plot device, yeah. Yeah. If I was doing a television show, I wouldn't kill Lylesburg right away. I wouldn't either. I mean, well, and not like right away. I would yeah. keep him around for at least one more season. Yeah, like so you can flesh him out a lot more. Because I think it'd be interesting, like, let's say that the first season was this movie. I think it'd be interesting as the story went on, if part of the showdown was Ashbury versus Lylesburg. So it was sort of priest versus priest. Yeah, I could definitely say that. Like an alkali versus reverend or whatever. And then Ashbury obviously being all fucking pissed because now he's a nightbreed and Baphomet and all that good stuff but yeah and that could spur on seasons two and beyond i would run him as like a long-running villain definitely towards the end of the after film, he gets set up see, uh... after he got set up in the season one i would plan to have ashbury be the main villain for at least the next three seasons that would be dope and just sort of pulling things behind the scenes and like the theatrical cut had Decker being brought back as a Nightbreed. Yeah, I, I would still use that and yeah, have him, it's be, a perfect plot have him be Ashbury's enforcer for the second season. Not only that, but that kind of plays on the fact, too, that you can choose to be like a part of not only the Nightbreed, but a part of Ashbury's little subgroup. Because as Eigerman says, he wants to follow him. He wants to be a follower. So hence this little subgroup. 
And it seems like people get turned away sometimes because, well, old I mean, man's perfect. well, Boone was exiled. Yeah, he sure was. But the old man points out, like, he asked Decker, he's like, are you pissed because they kicked you out? And it's like he's ran into it before. Yeah, exactly. So you have people who would want to join on with Ashbury, presumably. Yeah. They might be scattered at this point, but that could be part of his overall plot. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you'd already have Decker, you'd have the Eigerman character, the cop. That could play back into that whole police force. The movie plays with religion. Clive Barker plays with religion. So the idea of priest versus priest... Ooh is interesting lalsberg being the priest of the no, night breed so, yeah. and uh, you know ashbury being a fallen priest and then you could turn that into a weird three-way conflict and almost like a civil war between the night breed there is with yeah. cabal now being this new up-and-comer who seems to have been the favorite of baphomet precisely and he's the fucking daywalker yeah, from what I understand, you know, we are talking about like the biblical references and this kind of goes right back to it, but I don't know if it's according to Doug Bradley or if it was according to Clive Barker, but the character of Lylesburg was supposed to be like this Moses figure. It was almost like a changing of the guard. He was holding these old laws in place. You know, he was, like I said, a carekeeper of sorts, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't like to ruffle the feathers too much, never really got to see. I mean, he, he was protecting this place, but... We know that this place can shift locations. Apparently, it's not like it's not like Midian's only in the cemetery somewhere in the middle of fucking Alberta, <laughs> you know. So with that, you're right. You could play on the fact that you have this Jesus maybe type figure in the Cabal changing the laws. That kind of gets murky too because that's not what Jesus did. But but there is that shift and another struggle with the church. Perhaps you, I mean you know, it like is. You're saying. I mean it's old covenant versus new covenant. Yeah. When you so, look at it, yeah, I mean, there like there's this change in prophecies, prophets, etc. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of foundational stuff that's already in place, and you can build upon it. This is a perfect franchise for it. And the other thing I wanted expanded in the TV show was the gay monster couple. <laughs> <laughs> you could totally do it. Well, which ones? Because there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, I could I see mean, lots. Hey. As soon as I said it, though, two came to mind, didn't they? At least one in general, and I already talked about like snake nips. Oh, yeah. And the demon. <laughs> yeah, they're like a huge couple. You can already see that. But I was going to say, Narcisse and Nonaka, before he died, there was a little flirtation there. It was mostly from Narcisse, but you could see that. One character I didn't want to mention, not that she's in it for very long, but I got some better insight into the person herself, but that was Christine McCorkendale, who played Shuna Sasi. Mm. Her character was really fucking good. I wish they would have used her a little bit more, but she talked about how she had to get very fit in terms of aerobics and she's a dancer so there was a lot of choreography because her character is very sensual and mm-hmm. you know has these really fluid motions and stuff like that and she does play some part of course in deadering some of the cops and stuff but she and pelican apparently had a relationship oh okay that never really got transferred over i mean they shot the scenes for her. there was like i won't say like they were having sex but there was a love scene so there's a lot of sensuality, and there's a lot of play between those two characters, but it never got flushed out in the film. I ended up writing down this question. I'm curious to hear your take, because I'm not sure if I was able to decide one way or another. Is Baphomet Nightbreed or something else? Ooh, you know, that's a good question. It doesn't really specify. We know it's their god, but yeah, is it a Nightbreed? What exactly is the Tribe of the Moon? That's a good question, actually. I would think in some essence, yes, but to what extent, I don't know. And if Baphomet is a nightbreed, how rare is it to have a nightbreed 
that powerful. Mm. Can they become more powerful? Can like thinking, Cabal level up? Yeah, well, not only that, but is there hierarchies of those gods too? Right. You know, maybe there's a god above him. Who knows? But that's a great question. That's an open-ended question too, yeah. Huh, I didn't think about it while I've been sort that. of thinking about that all day. I'm like, is Baphomet a nightbreed? And if Baphomet is a nightbreed, then what other possibilities does that make there in this, huh. in this mythology and this universe? Yeah, that's a great point. I need to talk to Clive. <laughs> <laughs> But, see, that's the fun of it. One other quote I want to mention, because if I don't mention this, this is really relevant to today's politics, too, believe it or not. So there's a line, Narcy says, and this is when he has the corpse bride. <laughs> and, he, you know, he's fucking around with that corpse down there. Not sexually, but just kind of dancing around with it. And, well, maybe. Lori runs into him, and he grabs her. He says, you know, anytime I see a pretty face, I just have to kiss it. I was like, holy shit, did Donald Trump steal that fucking line? <laughs> All right? Like, holy cow. Not that it's a direct quote, but Trump mentioned, you know, during like the beauty pageants and shit that he couldn't help himself. Like, he just. I thought the same fucking thing. Oh my God. And that leads into that whole grab him by the hoochie coochie. I was like, holy shit, man. I wonder if he watched this film and that inspired that line. He knows all the best quotes. (laughs) holy shit man i ended up taking a lot of notes about midian one of my other notes about midian was with the danny elfman score it was just adult halloween town dude no shit i kind of felt like he was using maybe the same format for like some of the batman like you know the it sounded kind of batman-y definitely felt like a little bit like maybe i don't know if he's maybe he did score because it's another tim burton film but edward scissorhands had a little Mm -hmm. bit of that feel that fantasy element but it's definitely right at home for Danny Elfman's scores, but I liked it. I liked it. It built upon that fantasy. Look, there was times during that Midian sequence where that score helped you bring, sort of bring a little bit of levity almost to it. Yeah. As you were panning sure. over some of the disgustingness that you were watching. Yeah, you're right. It kind of, it didn't make them maybe feel as grotesque. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just enough where it's playful. It made it feel adventurous rather than frightening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you had like these dissonant, strings <laughs> instead of his well, the strings his that he style. gives decker oh, deckers yeah. i think there's a couple times decker is accompanied by some pretty vicious strings yeah i agree i mean that's kind of the cool thing about those sound design is how whether it's you know like we said in a particular place like midian or if it's based upon characters yeah you're going to have these either discords or in this case dissonance and stuff so yeah i, I kind of like that i'm noticing that too in film that's part i really enjoy we already talked about how the old man wanted to be a nightbreed. What the fuck is with the old man anyway, though? And I asked that after having seen the inside of his place. It felt a little Texas Chainsaw-y. <laughs> it's like the Saw's family. I was waiting for him to say that. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I didn't know what to make of that, necessarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see like, mean. at first, I was like, okay, old man, like, cool. And then I'm like, oh, Decker's probably going to kill him. And I'm going to oh, see, yeah. like, I'm going to see you, goddamn. I'm going to, what I thought I was, I was going to see the gas station attendant in Hills Have Eyes. Oh, damn. Yeah, that guy. That's what I thought I was getting. You know what I mean? It's yeah, just, I can see it's that. something like that. Instead, the inside of his place is something else. Yeah, it <laughs> it's is. It's something to behold. I would love to step foot in there. It is creepy. It's, it's creepy. Unique. Yeah, it's unique. <laughs> Especially when you see it after Decker's got him in the chair, you get a little bit more. Of that overhead shot of the place, yeah. It's got some weird shit in there. But I liked it. Cronenberg kind of has a funny line in there where 
he stabs the guy and he's like, what does he say? It's like either you tell me or like or not. Or not. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. When Cabal finally lets out the Berserkers, the first thing that popped into my mind, and the more I think about them side by side, I'm probably way off on this, but I know that this movie was... I know I'm way off on this because this movie was an homage to movies way older than right, this. Right. But the first thing I thought was like, damn, Rob Zombie owes fucking Clive Barker a little bit for his design of the goddamn professor in House of oh, Thousand yeah, Corpses. Yeah, I, can, I see what you mean, yeah. Speaking of films that we've actually talked about and covered, that also made me think of The People Under the Stairs. Oh, yeah. Where he lets them out, and then he jumps up and pulls himself mm-hmm. up and lets it run right past. But I was like, you know, maybe it was a little bit... I, I highly doubt it, but it's just it could be just an old trope, like you said. Uh, that's something else that I would hope the TV show delves into, is I hope we get to see more people become Nightbreed so that we have to deal with the fallout and seeing what happens when somebody becomes a berserker. Oh, dude. You know, even with the flashback... I would like to see like something, maybe just it could be an episode. Historical Nightbreed? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Like, you get a little bit more of that. Like, how far back the Nightbreed goes. How long do some of them live? That might be really easy to do flashbacks. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. But no, I mean, yeah, just even in those dream sequences, flush them out a little bit more, give it a little bit more background. This is kind of Explain more why they're dreaming each other. Yeah, I mean, that's Shona Saucy. That's what I was talking about. I dreamt of him. You can bring in a love triangle in the second season where they're somehow, where him and Shuna are somehow connected, but he's still trying to keep his romance going with Lori. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you could for the drama, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? But that's the fun thing about this in in Clive Barker's world is... Obviously, you you should have us writing Nightbreed. (laughs) I mean, if you want to offer that to us, hell yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of experienced at this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, by a little bit of experience, I I don't know. I mean, I not that way we dabble shit. in writing, but I mean, idea-wise, conceptually-wise, yeah. <laughs> we got ideas. <laughs> we got ideas that we can just throw at people. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. But that's the thing, like I said, about some of these films. Even though this film is almost... 30 years old. So I can come up There's, with the answers for all of these. Yeah, Just give I mean, me enough time and enough weed. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Pay us in some weed. Pay our bills a little bit. <laughs> we can do this. But the thing I was getting at too is this is the thing I really enjoy about this film is it's something that is getting a television series after all this time. It got these different transfers after so much time that is drawing a new fan base. It's drawing the old fan base. Good. It's a fucking fantastic movie. It is Good. so brilliant. I mean, it's keeping Clive Barker, which, not that he, he ever fell off, but it's keeping him very much still a part of the pop culture and horror. You know, it's keeping him very relevant. Fucking Clive Barker's awesome, dude. Yeah. Outside of that, I mean, just some of the paintings, too, with the way that Spell the Prophecies is out, that's what I was getting at. It's just, there's a lot of foreshadowing and some of the use of language in this film they kind of tell you without directly telling you you know and that's what i kind of liked about it there's so much stuff going out of play here it's super layered one thing i kind of wish that this movie had or one person i kind of wish this movie had was all the cops kind of had the same sort of look to them oh they were super and i was really hoping that one (laughs) of them was going to turn around and it was suddenly going to be harry dean stanton (laughs) we could have been there's something i caught dude and i was like holy shit this is funny that he kept it in this particular cut but when eigerman is what i wrote down is gathering up the posse Mm -hmm. it's like town folk and all the cops when they're all gathering in that police station parking lot 
it's really quick, but I noticed this guy like standing on the roof of one of the trucks and he's kind of like swanned out and he's like spitting out his drink like fountain wise. It's like, fuck me, man. They really use that. So I mean, there's just like little funny stuff like that. I like the use of humor in this film too. It, not that it, this movie ever gets like super dark, but it does lighten up certain moods. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like that. So it, some of the humor in this movie was so awkwardly placed in that it didn't feel out of place, but it actually helped sort of just keep you like off balance. You know what I, I mean? Like you're, there was a couple lines that Pelican had, I think, that sort of qualified for that, where he throws in a little quip that sort of feels not quite right. It doesn't throw you out of the movie. It more just sort of keeps your unease in place. Gosh, yeah, he was really good in this film with Oliver Parker. I really enjoyed him, man, as that character. Y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) So my last big thing is I feel like the destruction of Midian and how Clive Barker wanted to make this the Star Wars of horror movies. Oh, yeah. Foretold the overall plot theme of The Last Jedi. (laughs) Damn, I haven't seen that yet, so... Sometimes you uh, just have to tear down the old, let it die. I understand, (laughs) yeah. Just funny, right? And they tear it all down to uh, start the legends anew. If you've seen it, and now you hear me liking it to Nightbreed, and you know Nightbreed well enough, you might agree with me. That's pretty interesting. Clive Barker foretold The Last Jedi. Yeah, I mean... Considering, like you said, the Star Wars aspect of it, yeah, that's pretty cool. I did like that twist that Midian had to come down. It's like that was just eventual. I mean, yeah, Beth May says it right too. Boom, Cabal, whatever. Yeah, and which I like that. You know, and that's what I was getting at too. It's already rooted in you know whether you consider Bible mythology or historical, whatever. It has a huge significance over the course of storytelling and just biblical references and allegory and all that good stuff. Actually. That was the second twist I liked in this movie. The first twist was I liked that Narcisse actually was a nightbreed. I did too. I was like, he wanted it so bad. Mm-hmm. He was, man, you know, we talked about that body horror, him ripping his Fucking flesh off, head and off. Shit. Yeah, that was really good. They said that because of how long and intensive it was for all that makeup, listening to some of the actors, especially the monsters themselves, they're like, some of it, you know, they could be anywhere between like six to nine hour shifts of just putting that shit on I can't on even daily. imagine. There is so much makeup. A lot. So, oh my god. Yeah. So many monsters. There is, but he said that they had to do it, and they only wanted to do it kind of like in a few takes, but they pulled that off in one take, him ripping his flesh off and shit in the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was pretty cool. One other person I want to talk about a little bit is Simon Bamford. Reason being is because I wanted to talk about some of the connections that Clive Barker had, and Bamford was... He was a Maca, the okay. guy with the Boston okay, Terrier. Yeah, yeah. All right. So first thing I want to mention with him... He was Rat Boy. Yeah, he's Rat Boy. <laughs> he plays the fool for Lylesburg, but he said it's interesting because he was in a King Lear play where he played the fool, and oh. Clive Barker actually played that too in a production on stage. You know, he's like, oh, I felt kind of right at home. He's like, oh, all I had to do was to reference King Lear, and I already knew the part. No. So that was Everybody be... plays the fool. Sometimes. So what I wanted to mention was the reason why he got on board, I mean, previously to working on the Hellraiser series, right, is he and Nick Vince actually did some theater work together. And Nick Vince is the guy with the Moon Crescent face, Kinski. No, the Moon Face boy. Yeah, Moon Face. <laughs> Jay Leno. And <laughs> it's, the, it's the fucking uh, Angry Orchard cat. <laughs> oh, my God, Yeah. <laughs> 
But Nick Vince had done some stage work with... Or no, not Angry Orchard. What am I thinking of? Uh, Shock Top. Shock Top. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Shock Top. That's a good beer, actually. <laughs> I like me some Shock Top. <laughs> but Nick Vince worked with Doug Bradley and Hugh Ross because both of those guys worked with Clive Barker when he had a theater production company called The Dog Company. Okay. Like, all these guys had a connection typically with theater... Bradley, because he was pinhead and all that stuff, he actually went to high school with, with Clive Barker, I which I thought was really part. cool. Yeah, and they, they actually formed that dog company together so that way they could put on plays and actually adapt some of Clive Barker's short stories onto theater. Hmm. Yeah, and so that's kind of where they all got their start, which I thought was kind of neat. So, like, with the rest of the people, image animation, the special effects makeup artists and all those people, and Robin Vigian, they apparently all worked together on other projects prior to them actually working with Clive Barker. But then he formed this other huge network oh, with cool. those. Yeah, so he used them a lot further on in some of his other films, which is kind of neat. But I wanted to bring up that dog a little bit. <laughs> The dog that Onaka uses. It never gets a name. Oh, okay. The Boston yeah. Terrier. Yeah. He's the one that wakes up Boone when he first gets to Midian. But the dog itself was named Frank, and the dog was the dog of a, one of the second directors on this film. And he says that that dog was super difficult to work with because it was like, for whatever reasons, he just, he never came around to Simon Bamford. <laughs> So he's like, he had to do a lot of persuasion. There was one scene in particular where the dog was supposed to run up these set of stairs. And he said it took 60 fucking takes because the dog would not come to him. And even they put the second director behind him to try to entice the dog. Mm -hmm. He said, by the end of that shoot, he's like, I had so much Marmite and sausages on me. (laughs) He's like, you know, he just never came around. He says, but the thing about it in the film, you couldn't tell because he's like, I always had to keep that dog close tight because he would want to squirm and leave me. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of funny. So see now I thought you were going to tell me that that dog actually had more acting credits than all of them combined. That would have been (laughs) fucking awesome. But in a weird connection, my family at one point, we did have a Boston Terrier and we named him Gizmo for obvious reasons. Yeah. I know I'm going off on a tangent a little bit, but he was one of those dogs. Like if you played music or whatever, and at the time I was learning guitar, so I would do like little bends (laughs) and he would howl when I do that. So I was like, oh, damn, he's cute. But anyhow, we have a little affinity for Boston Terriers in our family. Nice. So it was cool. Yeah, so outside of that, I mean, there's just some really cool features on Shell Factory, their edition, man. It's really cool. Like, it talks about the making of, how the studio interfered, and how Doug Bradley said, he's like, oh, yeah, we in the industry call that finance money. It's <laughs> like where Morgan Creek and 20th Century Fox, like, their people were just murking it up too much. And that's mm-hmm. why the theatrical release didn't necessarily get... The uh, love. The love and the respect it desired. Even Doug Bradley, believe this or not, all of his lines got dubbed by a German actor in the studio in Los Angeles for the theatrical cut. So he's like, man, I was pissed because he said they had a mole in mm-hmm. 20th Century Fox that was letting Clive Barker know, like, they're chopping this up and they want to make it a slasher more so than focusing on the monsters being the good guys. Like you were saying, they wanted the monsters to be a little bit more, I don't know, uh, enhanced. Yeah, they, okay. that's why they went back in reshoots. They wanted to enhance some of those monster characters. But until that director's cut, they actually used, like, Doug Bradley went back in an ADR to his own fucking voice. Except for one scene, they still use that German actor. That German actor still gets uncredited for the voice acting. Hmm. Yeah, so there's stuff like that. You could see, if you go back and watch the theatrical cut, see where the differences are between that transfer and the director's cut and why 
the director's cut so much more superior. Yeah, I'm probably not going to go back and do that. No, I'm not. I don't think I am either. It's like, I already got the superior copy. I don't need to analyze it any further, but I'm glad we finally got to do this, dude. It's such a fun yeah, film. It's such a good movie. Shit. And we said Pet Cemeteries next week, right? Oh my gosh, man. I've been thinking about that, of course, for like fucking shit two out. months. But, okay. dude, so much to talk about, especially commentary style. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun with that. In order to listen to us do that with our buddies, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. If you don't like how you're listening to us right now, we have links at the top of our website, www.friedsquirms.com, where you can always stream us down at the bottom of the website with all sorts of fun bits and updates in between. Access our archive there as well and go back to our previous episodes, which would be awesome because we've covered quite a few movies. You know, I've navigated a lot just for old references sake and it's super easy to figure out like you know depending on the dates and it gives me time frames so yeah the archive is a good place to see where we were at in certain times you can also follow us on facebook fried squirms twitter at fried squirms or instagram fried squirms podcast you can email us squirmcast at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website we know that that works yeah and sean Aston knows how to use it yeah apparently he does and he said that we were a little harsh on his character in Rudy, but he still liked our review of yeah, Season he doesn't, of Witch. He doesn't want to know what I think about Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> Stupid fat habits! Oh my gosh. So yeah, Sean Astin's a fan, apparently. We don't know if it's the real Sean Astin, but we would like to think it is. <laughs> we know it's not the real Sean. No, but I can still pretend. So yeah, I mean, outside of that, I'm looking forward to... We've got some good plans for at least the next couple episodes. Yeah, I agree. Plus a mini-sode coming up too, right? Yeah, Purge election year. Yeah. So That'll be whenever it drops. Yeah, we, soon. We're still figuring out the day we're going. Exactly. We're going. But it's we're happening. Going. We're doing this. <laughs> we love you. We love you guys. Fried squirms? Out. out.